Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, an author, speaker, and apologetics professor, also here at Biola University. We're here today with Pastor Chris Brooks, who's a radio host, seminary dean, community developer, and he pastors a church just outside of Detroit, joining us for the second part of our conversation. And again, I am phoning in from the car on the way to my son's football game. Chris, let me, let me ask you, um, what, what is your view of the Black Lives Matter movement? Uh, specifically, yeah. What what's what is what do you think what has it positively contributed, and then what what concerns you about it? Yeah, so um, Black Lives Matter has to be thought of in this way: we have to separate the affirmation or the statement from the organization and its mission. The statement "Black Lives Matter," the affirmation, I think, is right and wise and needs to be said. Here's what the church has to understand is that we've always been most effective when we've been specific, intentional, and particularized. Again, I refer to the pro-life movement in this area. I am passionately pro-life. We have a pregnancy resource center on the campus of our church. We're in partnership with CareNet. I've evangelized and witnessed and, and, and stood outside of abortion clinics. I've been participating in uh, 40 Days for Life as long as I can remember. So, passionately pro-life. But we will say with specificity uh, that we are pro- protecting and defending the life of the unborn. Very specific, very unashamed. When we say, hey, all lives matter, what we're basically doing is diminishing this specificity to a group of people who need the affirmation. Now, why do blacks need the affirmation? It's because we're the only people who were ever brought to this country forcibly that were not seen as fully human. We're the only people who had to fight for our humanity to be codified into official documents in this country. Then you have the three-fifth compromise that basically was a way of saying, okay, we'll identify some of your humanity, but not all. And the only reason we're doing this is for economic and political purposes. If you remember the Civil Rights Movement, one of the major iconic figures that comes out of that is an image of a man carrying a, 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 a kind of a walking billboard that says, I am a man. This quest for African Americans to justify their humanity is deeply rooted in the origins of, that, of, of our country, and it's continued on to current times. And so I think Black Lives Matter has done a good job in highlighting the particularity of, of, of needing to affirm that. But I also think where we need to be cautious is to recognize they're not just a racial justice movement. They also have many other uh, things that we wouldn't agree with as evangelicals, such as uh, uh, LGBT issues and uh, transgender issues. There is much of uh, a promoter of transgenderism and uh, homosexuality as they are of racial equality. So we need to be cautious about the organization while being very passionate about the affirmation. Hey, that, that, yeah, that's a really helpful nuancing of that. I, I appreciate those distinctions that you're making. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could give us just some thoughts on what our posture can be on this issue as a whole. Because I, I sense that there's people that there's a real defense 
defensiveness that comes to this. There's a fear to speak up that if you ask a question, somebody's going to call you racist for even asking a question. So sometimes people just stay silent. Give me some just wisdom for just people like myself speaking up on this issue, what our posture can be. And also, we tend to make racial issues us versus them. Yeah. Should it be just begin with each one of us going, all right, have I fallen short in this area? Do I need some introspection? Like, what should our posture be as a whole just thinking through this personally? Yeah, you know, I, I do a lot of altar calls, <laughs> Sean, in my ministry, and there's certain sins that I've never gotten a response to. I've never gotten uh, uh, someone to stand up and say, you know, I'm guilty of classism. You know, let me come to the altar and repent of that. We're just blind in that area, right? We're blind in the area of greed. None of us really think we're greedy. Some people brought to repentance of that. But very rarely do you see somebody stand up and say, you know what, yeah, I got racism issues, right? And I think the, the, the number one reason why, Sean, is because we see one side of racism when there's really two sides. There is one side that we all know, and that is sentiment, right, what my intentions are against you, right? And if I don't have ill will towards you, if I don't have evil sentiment towards you, I don't want to do you harm, then I'll think, well, man, I'm not doing anything that's racist because I don't want to harm Sean, right? But sentiment is only one side of it. The other side of it is structure, structural institutions. In other words, am I unintentionally supporting systems that may be racist in their construct that I didn't realize? And I think that's where the analysis has to be put in. If I'm profiting from a business that exploits the poor, even if I don't have any ill will towards the poor, even if my sentiment is right, I'm supporting systems and structures that are wrong. So I think we do need to evaluate. But at the end of the day, I think the best way for us to approach this is to listen, is to simply be able to say, I want to hear from my brother, from my sister, why are they concerned? There is nothing more painful in a relationship than you having someone who loves you dismiss your pain. And when a large segment of our brothers and sisters in Christ are complaining that I'm hurting, to have that dismissed or minimized, it, it really opens the door for uh, the occult. It opens the door for alternative religious spirituality. You know, in my community, when I do apologetics, I'm running up against groups that many of your listeners may not know about, such as Hebrew Israelites or Five Percenters. Some will know about the Nation of Islam. Uh, more Science Temple. These are groups that have been prevalent in the black community. Um, and the reason why is because the door has been left wide open, often because of the failure of the church to address black concerns. And so then here comes these alternative Christian, uh, alternative religious groups to say, well, the church won't address your concerns, your hurts, your suffering, your pain, but we will. And it, and it really fleeces the flock. And so I would just simply say, listen, pray together, and strive towards Christian unity. And I say that to my minority brothers and sisters as well. Try to engage in a conversation without being accusatory, but yet tell the truth, but have as a goal Christian unity. Chris, thanks. Those, those, I think those are really helpful, practical suggestions to help move the conversation forward. Let me ask you about another, another concept uh, how would you assess the notion of white privilege? 
Um, in, in some discussions of race, it seems like it's almost axiomatic. In other discussions of race, it seems like the, the idea is non-existent. Um, yeah. Help, yeah. help us assess that notion. Man, these terms have become so inflammatory, and I think that if we had more time, I would talk about the history of critical race theory, which is um, very Marxist in nature, very dangerous, and we need to be aware of that, and some of these concepts have their roots in that. But let me just say in a very practical way what white privilege is not saying. What it is not saying is that, hey, whites of all, all whites have, a, have been born with a silver spoon in their mouth, that all whites have been rich and wealthy and none of them have had to suffer. I think we got a lot of people who are listening to us right now that grew up in poor rural communities. A lot had to scrap for everything they got. Uh, nothing was given to them. So, Sean, I know the testimony of your dad real personally. I know his challenges he faced. So I can hear a lot of white people saying, I didn't have privilege. It was the opposite of privilege, right? What white privilege is basically saying is that historically in this country, it has been a benefit to be white, or put a different way, it's been better and more advantageous to be white than it has been to be black. Now, there's been improvements in those areas. There's been things that have been done to try to rectify that. But historically, it's been easier to buy a home, to get a job, to get a loan for a business if you were white than it was if you were black. And that's just been the case. And so we have to acknowledge that, and we have to also acknowledge that there are systems in banking, in education, in housing that were set up to uh, privilege whites over blacks in this country. And here's the thing, uh, Scott and Sean, wherever we've acknowledged that disparity and we've addressed it, we've improved it, we've rectified it, we've done well. But when we refuse to acknowledge that there are systems and structures, institutions that were set up to benefit whites over blacks, and we refuse to acknowledge that, we can never rectify it. So we need to be honest about that, and we need to identify what are those institutions, what are those organizations that are set up to privilege whites over blacks, and let's address that so that that disparity can be done away with. I think that again, that's a very, I think, a very helpful nuancing of this. Let me ask one follow-up question on this: how, how much of this would you say is, is we would say, more socioeconomic based as opposed to strictly race based? I know that's that's a yeah. big point of discussion in this yes. in this whole subject. Yeah, I love I love what you're saying, and, and here's one of the ways that we can think about this: is that you and I and others, we all have certain amounts of social capital. Now, your social capital will be the network of relationships you have, the doors that are open to you because of your education and because of your income, right? And those aren't even across the board. Some of us have more social capital than others. And so what we have to recognize is that people who have little amounts of social capital in this country, right, are easily exploited and easily mistreated. Now, a lot of times that is synonymous with race, but not all the time. Uh, our dear brother Anthony Bradley over at the King's College, I think, has done a great job in, in, in highlighting the pain and suffering of poor whites in this country. And, and we need to make sure we're aware of that, even in the evangelical church. I'll give you one example. When it comes to church planning, when was the last time you heard someone say, I want to plant churches, I want to start a church planting movement in poor white communities? I want to, you know, go to trailer parks and start a church planting movement there. 
We just don't do that, right? And so I think that in a lot of ways, because of the way that we've looked at poverty and, and poor people, we have uh, uh, devalued them, and we've seen them as, as either being cursed uh, or we've seen them as only mouths that consume instead of minds that create. So classism does play a big role in this. Yeah, that, that, I think that's a really good observation. I, I've yet to hear someone talk about how they want to do church planting in rural Appalachia, for example. Yeah. Hey, it just well, doesn't happen. Yeah. Well, tell me one other I'm, – I'm curious to get your take on one, on one other current issue that's very controversial, and that is uh, – in when the national anthems played before NFL games, and the the different players that are either kneeling or making other protest gestures, um, and what, what what's your take on the on the players who are doing that? Oh, man, this is this is uh, unfortunately an issue that has lost its original intent, and uh, and it has been it been so convoluted. That it's 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 hard to talk about it without politicizing it, but let me just say I think in its original form, what it was designed to be was the most respectful way of being able to communicate and bring attention to issues that minority communities live under. You know, I want I want to just say this really quickly, Scott, and I think this is important. Far more concerning to me and to many. Uh, than the individual incidences that we hear of an unarmed black man being shot. Uh, and we can just go down the line from Eric Gardner to the 12-year-old Tamir Rice and so many others, right, uh, is the culture of racism that exists in a number of police departments. In 2015 and 16, the Department of Justice, along with the FBI, released a report that named over a dozen major police departments across this country that had documented uh, patterns of abusing or routinely violating the civil rights of blacks or a culture of racism. When you have departments that are exchanging emails that are uh, saying derogatory things about blacks, perpetuating negative stereotypes, condoning the abuse or profiling or the violation of civil rights. When you have departments doing this, you've got a really, really major issue that has to be dealt with head on. Now, it's easy if you're not living in these communities to say, well, that's a non-issue, right? It's easy to say, well, you're just coming against cops. That really was not the original intent of this. It was to say not all cops are bad, but all bad cops are bad. And all bad cops are doing a lot of harm to the good cops' reputation. Let's deal with this seriously as a nation head on. Unfortunately, I can't tell you of any type of uh, protest that blacks have done throughout history that has been embraced by the broader white community. You know, let me just give you two examples of that. In 1961, May of 1961, the Freedom Riders that many of your listeners may remember, these are young black and white youth who rode across the country to uh, promote voting rights. They're, they're, uh, eventually, they were, their van was bombed and, and they died. Several of them died. But in May of 1961, the country was asked, uh, do you believe that the Freedom Riders, uh, do you approve, or, uh, I'm sorry, do you approve or disapprove of the Freedom Riders and what they're doing? 61% of America said they disapproved of this group that simply was committed to promoting voting rights of blacks. 
Let's look at another example. This is uh, the example of sit-ins, uh, where, as you remember, during the civil rights, one of the strategies that was used was that blacks would go into white-only diners and sit at counters to request service. When asked uh, whether or not they felt this issue was uh, a good approach or a bad approach, 57% of Americans said they thought it was a bad approach. What this says to blacks is it really doesn't matter what we do, it's going to be criticized, whether it is gathering together in the streets or it is simply quietly kneeling during the anthem or if it's sitting at a counter or if it's doing freedom rides or if it's just tweeting. No matter what we do, the message we feel we get often from broader white America is stay in your place, don't complain. And I think that is the fundamental concern with many African Americans is what is then the right way to protest? What pro what type of protest will be applauded and accepted? I don't think there is one. In including what current NFL players are doing. Uh, yeah, including what current NFL players are doing. Now, you know whether or not a person protests or in that way or not, I, I think is a matter of conscience. I think there there is obviously. Uh, uh, a recognition that we need to, as Americans, affirm uh, the uh, commitment we have to this country, and I would encourage that. Uh, but in the same way, I recognize that what these players are trying to do is to say, uh, I, I want to use the privilege and platform that I've been given to be able to bring awareness to issues that aren't maybe affecting me. Most of them are going to be insulated right. from a right. lot of these things, not all of them but they're trying to bring attention to that. Uh, I do understand those who have soldiers in their families who have laid down their lives. And I think, again, some way we have to stop pitting one another against each other, and we need transcendent leaders in this moment who are going to say, let's bring together those who are concerned on both ends, and let's have dialogue about how we can rectify this. I would have loved to seeing someone bring Colin Kaepernick into a room with some veterans and some family members of fallen soldiers to say, okay, how do we hear one another's concerns so that we can emerge from this in a way that unites us and doesn't further divide us? I haven't heard of anybody suggesting that so far. Um, now, that, thank you, Chris. That's really helpful. Sean, I know uh, this winter you're going to bring a group of high school students down to downtown L.A. to meet with the Black Lives Matter groups. Uh, tell Chris a little bit about that, and I know you've got a question or two for him about that. Yeah, Chris, just thinking through kind of in my own work at Biola and with high school students separately, trying to think through what are some practical things we can do. Number one, to educate young people. Number two, to just advance the ball and make a difference. So we're going into L.A. for a couple of days. We're going to stay at a church down there, and we're just going to go meet with a variety of different groups. We're going to meet with pastors. We're going to meet with some Black Lives Matters groups. We're going to talk with some different races, bring in speakers. And the whole goal is just to listen and to learn. And I'm curious, number one, with high school students, do you think this is a good idea? Would you give us any advice or suggestions or thoughts as we kind of venture out trying something new for us, which is kind of uncharted territory, so to speak? Yeah, so I would just say two things. Number one, bravo to you. I think we shouldn't be afraid of engaging uh, the world around us, the culture around us. I know you're not, uh, either of you. 
And I think we need to train a generation of young people who are what Dr. King called tough-minded and tender-hearted type of Christians who can think critically and live compassionately. We don't do them any uh, service if we just shield them from these conversations. We have to believe that the gospel is big enough to take on the toughest questions and the toughest critics and be able to transform the human heart. With that being said, I would definitely make sure that you spent time with them looking at the mission statements of the groups that you're going to go visit so that they can have dialogue and thought, not only about the practical ways that these organizations are expressing themselves, but what are they saying in their mission statements? How have they expressed what their aim is, what their goal is, their vision for the organization? Then secondly, I would encourage them, for example, with Black Lives Matter, to look at the issues that they're championing. One of the things that most people have never looked at with Black Lives Matter is the Zero Campaign. Now, the Zero Campaign gives 10 issues that they're asking for. For example, independently investigating and prosecuting police who are viewed as being um, uh, repeat violators, having a a special prosecutor, like what we do in government when we have to look outside of the normal prosecutorial processes. Uh, Limited force, uh, community representation, body cameras from police. Most of the things that they're asking for, we would readily affirm. I think sometimes because of the characterization of groups, we just wholesale uh, ignore what they're saying or resist what they're saying when some things that they're communicating are things that, again, all of us want in our communities and we would affirm. So I would say do your research, understand what their mission statements are, and then have the post-dialogue after you've talked to them, after you've heard them, of how does this then uh, uh, equate to the gospel or how does this relate to the gospel, making sure you filter everything through the biblical worldview And I think that if you do that, those young people will be more enlightened and more effective in their Christian witness. Thanks for weighing in, Chris. Yeah. Chris, thank you so much. This this has been incredibly insightful for us. I I appreciate uh, your willingness to speak to a whole host of issues that are viewed pretty controversially in our culture today. Um, So so thank you very much for your time with us. Uh, We wish you all the best in in your the, the numerous responsibilities that you have as pastor, radio host, dean, and as dad and husband, yeah. um, as you continue to live faithfully for Christ and proclaim the gospel in your community. So, Chris, we're delighted to have you with us. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, guys, and, and let's continue to strive for, again, what Jesus prayed for in John 17, and that is the oneness and unity of the body across race and ethnicity and across class. And uh, as we do that, I believe we'll be a more effective witness to a watching and weary world. God bless you guys. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Pastor Chris Brooks, and to find more episodes, go to www.biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.